News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Indeed we do, and tonight we welcome back as a guest co-host, Delphine Governor. Goodness me, Delphine, uh, things have changed a lot since we used to work on radio together some years ago. You left Alan Gray, where you were uh, top of the pops and started Perpetua uh, with your husband and doing great things. Yeah, thank you, Alec. I was trying to uh, scratch my head and remember when we first chatted on the radio in both our previous lives, and it was early 2000s, and I think the first stock I spoke about was Clicks. Uh, and it, it's done quite well since we, we first spoke about it. Um, but it's great to be back here, and um, I don't think we're talking about Clicks today, but, but other stuff. Well, we're going to be listening very careful to the first stock that you talk about now, because if you'd bought Clicks in the early 2000s, hmm, would have been pretty good. But we've got a good good show coming up. We are going to be talking a little bit about cryptocurrencies in between. We'll be chatting to two very high-profile chief executives of JSE listed companies, Stefano Morani, who is with Renogen. Um, I was watching a video earlier, Justin, uh, on Easy Equities, where he spoke to their, uh, their uh, community, and they said in that video that there are more than 7,000 Easy Equities clients who own that stock, Renogen. Alec, Renogen's been a hot stock of late. I mean, it's it's increased, it's du- nearly doubled in price over the last six months. And um, I can't wait for Stefano Morani to unpack what's happening there in the company. Very, very good uh, communicator and the stock listed on the JSE and in Australia. Uh, they get helium and uh, natural gas from the Free State, from the old Virginia mines, I'm, I presume. And then another high-profile CEO tonight, Stephen Van Collar, the chief executive EOH. I've got some questions for Stephen because the strategy seems to have been real good at EOH, getting rid of, um, if you like, the non-core businesses. And now they're selling their two jewels in the crown. Why? It, it, it seems like it's going off, off piece there on the strategy we're talking about. Uh, Dudu and I were talking about uh, skiing and, and my very incompetence at that uh, attempting, but so I had to use some skiing terminology. But off-piste uh, does appear to be. I'm sure Stephen will have pretty good reasons why they are selling the IP businesses. And uh, in between all of that, we'll be talking to Helena Conradi. She's the chief executive of Satrix. We're following up on the Absa Money Market Fund that was closed, 85 billion rand. Funny, it, it hasn't really been picked up much in the media. It hasn't. Um, I mean, there have been some opportunists out there like Signia. They've, they've offered their money market funds at 0% fee until the end of 2022. So you get these innovative companies that um, at the end of the day eat the other big corporates' lunches. Well done to, it's not Magda anymore, it's Magda's team, the Signia team, but I guess the culture runs very deep. South Africa is facing delays to coronavirus vaccine supplies because of unreasonable terms being demanded by manufacturers. That's according to Health Minister William Kize. He says the government has been notified by Johnson and Johnson that the company will not sign off on the supply of 20 million doses until it receives a letter from the government supporting its investment in a domestic company. The Democratic Alliance's Western Cape leader Bonging Kozi Madikizela has been accused of lying about his qualifications. 
DA Federal Council Chairperson Helen Ziller says that the party regards this in a serious light. Madike Zella, who is the DA leader and MEC for Transport, says it was indeed true that he did not finish his BCom degree, but he also says that this is not a requirement for a political office in South Africa. This expose comes after the DA highlighted that more than one-third of civil servants are not sufficiently qualified for their positions. The ruling ANC has been accused of deploying its cadres across bloated public sector entities. South African airlines are in a price war to attract customers, and one is even tempting passengers with an offer to take a small dog on a flight with them. The airline industry took a tremendous knock in 2020 following the COVID-19 pandemic and related travel bans. That resulted in the death of South African Airways, while Comair, which operates Kalula.com and British Airways in South Africa, entered into voluntary business rescue proceedings in May last year. Towards the end of last year, the Comair Rescue Consortium injected fresh equity of 500 million rand into the airline, which allowed it to take to the skies again after an eight-month absence. Kalula.com and British Airways resumed services in December under new CEO Glenn Osmond. Meanwhile, this week, Lyft said that your dog will now be able to travel in a pet-friendly carry bag placed under the seat in front of you. Lyft says larger dogs and other pets are not currently allowed on its flights, but adds that people should watch the space. Investor demand for all things crypto surged amid Coinbase Global's public debut. The direct listing of the biggest U.S. crypto exchange has pushed tokens even more into the mainstream of investing, exposing legions of potential buyers to the digital asset class that has grown into a $2 trillion industry in little more than a decade. Bitcoin, the original and biggest crypto coin, is valued at more than $1 trillion alone after a more than 800% surge in the past year. Nearly three dozen of China's largest technology companies have made public pledges to comply with the country's anti-monopoly laws as they scramble to fall in line following Beijing's moves to reign in the business empire of Jack Ma, the country's best-known entrepreneur. All 12 statements were strikingly similar in tone, expressing their resolve to not engage in anti-competitive behavior and listing the areas in which they would work to build a fair and competitive market. The regulator says it will publish more pledges in the coming days and has invited the Chinese public to help scrutinize the company's behavior. And that was your Biz News Flash Briefing. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. For more on those stories, do head over to biznewsradio.com. Our editor-at-large, Jackie Cameron, uh, keeping us up to date with the big news stories. Most interesting one of those, uh, Delphine, was what's going on in China. We're going to hear in just a moment from Justin how that affected share prices on the JSE. But a notable absentee from the 12 Chinese companies who have now signed compliance agreements almost uh, with the Chinese government is Tencent. They haven't put their heads above the parapet, but Baidu, Alibaba, uh, pretty much all the other big ones are. Yeah, um, quite uh, intriguing. I don't have much insight into that. And I guess um, one thing I think all the Chinese companies, particularly the large, you know, mega cap tech stocks that are operating in, in the whole zone know that they a lot of their um, business and value proposition has been to a large extent uh, almost been bequeathed to them by the Chinese government. Their right to exist, the fact that, you know, the other global players are not in their markets. Um, so I think it's simply more a matter of, of time or we don't, often, unfortunately, we don't really know what negotiations happen behind doors. Um, but I think it's the right step. I think it's the clarity we saw 
Alibaba's share price rise after having, you know, them having almost crystallized the fine because it brought some clarity to the process. So um, the more important thing is that is that investors are seeking some clarity, and so it's a good thing that that um, there is that being developed. Two point eight billion dollar fine, and they said thank you very much, uh, Beijing, for fining us. Uh, let's get on to the markets today, Justin. The JSE All Share Index was up at sixty seven thousand eight hundred. The U.S. banks reported bumper first quarter earnings, smashing expected earnings out the park. All U.S. banks were strongly up in the morning session. On the JSE, the highlights included growth point up 3.5% to 13.50, despite going ex-dividend on the news that a consortium wants to purchase a 30% stake in European real estate company Global Worth for 8 billion rand. Growth point paid approximately 3 billion for its stake in Global Worth in 2017. Sabanya Stillwater was up 5% to 70 rand a share. Richmond increased 3 rand 50 to 150 rand a share, with LVMH reporting 30% increased revenues year, year on year, possibly acting as a tailwind for Richmond today. Sassel reached another 52-week high on the back of stronger oil prices. The share is trading at 233 rand a share. And lastly, EOH finished the day 5.5% lower at 8 rand 8 cents a share as the company released its interim results. We look forward to chatting to Stephen van Koller, unpacking those results and more for us later. Delphine, did you watch EOH uh, in the presentation or look at the results? Is it a company you follow? Um, I didn't, Alec. I'm uh, sorry, I didn't look at that today. Um, I used to follow it um, almost out of, not because we owned it, but also just because it represented such a big stock and it was a very popular stock uh, like five or six years ago on the stock exchange. You know, I think it peaked perhaps over 180 bucks, I think at its peak, um, down to, I went all the way down to the low single digits. I think it's around eight now. So, but I think the issue there, um, you know, H actually, interestingly for us, also started to represent around the time of African Bank and in the era just beyond that, the whole, the, the governance part of the ESG role of investing. And so I think it started popping up on the radar. And interestingly, um, the, the, the very smart guys at ARC, they had bought a big stake in EOH back in the day, at, and, and I think they've since exited it. But um, it started to put it on the radar. But I didn't listen to the results today, but I'm curious to see, I had a quick look at them, and I'm curious to see, um, I think it's been a hard run for Stephen taking over um, and and has had a lot, there's still a lot of legacy with those problematic contracts. And so we've actually just avoided it. Um, we've just put it on the pile that said, for now, too hard to call. Mm. The, the biggest pile of them all, says Warren Buffett. Well, Stefano Morani is uh, with us. He's the chief executive of Renogen. You've been following the stock, Justin. Why? It's a very interesting story. Um, so they've got the Virginia gas project in the free state. Um, and, and that's uh, getting a lot of attraction at the moment. They've just recently got their first corporate deal from that. I think a, a German uh, automotive company. Um, Stefano, you can confirm that for me. Um, and yeah, this, the stock price has surged uh, 100% over the last 12 months. They also listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. Um, there's a heavy regulatory burden that comes with that. So there's a lot of announcements um, and a lot of clarity with Renogen's um, corporate dealings. Um, so looking to, uh, forward to having Stefano on the show and unpack everything that's happened in the last, I'd say, for 2021 for Renogen. It's been a busy one. Wasn't there something to do with the SENS report that came out and then was, uh, was, was abandoned? 
Yes, so so yesterday uh, the company reported a cautionary announcement and then two hours later the cautionary announcement was withdrawn. This is a little bit strange. However, I do have a feeling that it's the ASX's listings requirements, so the Australian Stock Exchange's requirements. But um, as I said earlier, I'm sure Stefano will be able to clear that up for us. Stefano, in a previous life, I ran a JSE listed company for 15 years. So I went through... Uh, the SENS reports and how you had to get everything right and go through, m- jump through many hoops before uh, you were allowed to even uh, think about having a, a, a SENS announcement issued. I've never heard of one going through the system and then being pulled. What happened? So the, the SENS on our side was, was all completely kosher. Um, yeah, it was all in, in accordance with with the JSE rules, we've got a designated advisor, PSG, and they're they're just really good. They're 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 really really good. They know exactly what they're doing. Our primary listing is obviously on this side. the The listing is is what we would call on this side an inward listing in Australia, vis a vis the fact that we've issued certificate certificate uh, uh, certificates of deposit or CDIs. the The disclosure rules on that side do not always mimic the disclosure rules on the South African side. And this, this, this also has shown itself particularly in the oil and gas sector. So when it comes time to announcing your updates with regards to what you have sitting underground for reserves, the, the SAMOG codes over here don't quite match the PRMS codes in Australia. Um, we also found that in terms of your continuous disclosure requirements, there are significantly more um, disclosures required by the ASX which aren't disclosed over here, with the result that we obviously from time to time get uh, get criticized because we're very active on the sense. But the, the truth of the matter is that you're not allowed to you're not allowed to issue an announcement on the one side and not on the other. And then by the same token, in the very rare occasion, there are situations where you have to ne- announce on the JSE and you don't necessarily need to do it on the ASX. And I think really what, what happened in this instance was um, the, the, the regulator on the Australian side is completely within its right to be able to request that you disclose additional information. Now, unfortunately, the contract in question, um, it had been requested by the, by the customer to, to, to keep certain elements private because the helium market is very close. It's very tight. Um, it's, it's important enough for Trump to have declared it the second most critical element to United States national security in 2018. So you're not you're not dealing with gold or platinum or copper here. This is this is this is a pretty special element. It's in very short supply. Um, it's in extreme demand, and it's used in. I mean, aside from balloons, it's actually used in some pretty pretty um, pretty curious spots that you wouldn't otherwise expect. And I think the. the where, where, where I came unstuck in terms of not being able to understand is that like over here, you submit the sends and you get it checked. There's a similar mechanism on the other side. You submit your, you submit your announcement and then the announcement goes through a vetting process and they'll come back and tell you, yay, nay, change this, change that. I... I'm not sure what happened this time, but, you know, when we submitted it, it just loaded immediately and released. And all was good and well, but no one came back to us to tell us anything. And then the stock was up 12%. And then I think at that point, on the ASX, it's called a speeding fine. 
<laughs> the minute that you get a speeding fine, a lot of questions get asked. And, and the ASX is completely within its right to do it. I think this is, whilst this is, this is unusual for South Africa, it's not unusual for the ASX side. So it, they, it they, was to do with a, a helium contract with a German uh, manufacturer. It's nothing to do with reserves or, or different classifications no. of what you've got in the ground. That's strange. No, no. I mean, when 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 we, I mean, when we released our our prospective resources, there there we went through a twelve. No, not twelve weeks. I think it was eight weeks. We went through an eight week process of the two exchanges talking, and debating with our reservoir analysts in Denver and Colorado, until both exchanges were happy with the disclosures, and that all the T's, uh, yeah, T's had been crossed and I's had been dotted. So, you know, we, we worked it through between the two exchanges and our reservoir analyst before that. This one, this one is kind of, it feels a little bit, and I, we'll never know what really happened. It just kind of feels like it, it accidentally slipped through the cracks. It's a very tight industry, isn't it, though? Uh, almost like junior miners who are looking for platinum. Then those of you who are in the gas, oil and gas, uh, I guess helium falls into that, that sector industry. And I'd be very interested to hear from you. What do you think is going on with Total? Uh, we know that they've pulled their people out of Mozambique. We also know with that huge project there, and we know that they've stopped drilling off Mossel Bay and Cape St. Francis. There was a, an announcement today to say, uh, from, a, from one of the um, environmental groups, to say how delighted they are that Total are no longer going to be drilling the 10 wells they were going to be drilling uh, off for natural gas uh, in the Southern Cape. Have you picked up anything there? Is it something strange going on with the company, given uh, the, the huge investment that they've made in this part of the world? So I, I, need, to, I need to caveat everything that I'm about to say with, 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 a, with a little cautionary statement here. It's in the public domain that, that Renogen and Total do have a relationship. So Obviously, you know, I, I can't reveal any private side information. And in regards to the question that you've just asked, I don't have any private side information. The only thing that I can offer is an opinion, and it's not an official opinion. Um, look, I, I, think, I think that there are challenges in, in Mozambique with the construction of that project. It's a very big project. It's a very expensive project. Um, the... Uh, and it, it's it's pretty serious. I mean, I think we've all all heard WhatsApps of, of people being evacuated, and I think everyone knows someone who knows someone at least that's that's been out there or was involved. It's um, they they have a very very big mountain ahead of them to try and climb to get that project built on time. Will it get built on time? I'm I'm still reasonably optimistic. Well, will it get built? Rather, yes, I'm still reasonably optimistic. Um, I do think that they are going to have some timing constraints, with regards to with regards to Mossel Bay, Brillpada, and um, and Lopat. Those are two terrific gas finds, but you have to appreciate just how difficult it is to drill deep sea, and then to drill that deep deep sea in the world's fastest current is no mean feat. I mean, to put it in context, when we drill a well. It costs us three million rand. When they drill a well, it costs them 180 million euros. Wow! Yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a different uh, it's a different kettle of fish. Yeah, it's an interesting story there. That the only time of the year they can drill apparently is in uh, January and February because that's the only time that the seas are not 
uh, too rough and that they've had to learn from the technology in the Shetland Islands uh, and, and the difficulties that, that they had there in drilling for oil or for gas to bring it to South Africa. And that's how they made their first couple of strikes. But I, I guess it, it is so important for the country as a whole uh, that those gas fines do get uh, brought into the economy, that we should be paying more attention to it. So it's great to get your uh, insider's view on it. Delphine, uh, from your perspective, have you been following much what's going on with Total in the in the Southern Cape, given that this could really transform South Africa's fortunes in the way that fracking did for the United States economy? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that that latter point is a critical one, which is, and, you know, Stefano also alluded to it, which is, you know, what's the, what's the bigger the bigger end point here. So timing in the short term might be disrupted. And obviously it's, you know, it's been awful what's been going on in Mozambique, but the bigger plan is the one that we almost need to remain focused to, which is um, the, the, the considerable impetus and, um, and, and thrust that alternative forms of, of energy sources, gas being specifically one of them, um, needs to come to play, um, particularly in South Africa, well, you know, that will that will really kind of get us off the dependence on, on coal-fired power stations and, and coal-fired energy. And so I think all the, you know, all the focus that we're seeing, so it's, it's, a, it's I agree with you, it's critical um, that we need to see this come to fruition, just as, as we are seeing, um, I think, one of the perhaps most successful private-public partners partnership, you know, strategies in government over the last um, several years have been the renewables rounds. Um, we're now in round five. So all of these combinations are part of the bigger end game. Um, and that bigger end game is exactly as you allude to, Alec, which we as, as citizens and, and as a society and I think as an economy need to see, um, which is a shift. Stefano, just looking at Renogen itself, you're well positioned, beautifully positioned, in fact, for the future that, uh, that Delphine has just outlined. And I can see the shareholders like it as well. Uh, three years, it's not quite Bitcoin, but it's not that far behind, uh, up 198% the share price in the last three years. In fact, in the, in the last six months, it's been on an absolute tear. How do you value a business like yours? Uh, or if, if, Obviously, retail investors have got the bit between their teeth here and they, they love the story. But on valuations, how would a, 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 perhaps a, a number cruncher uh, try and put numbers together to, to compare you with global peers? So I suppose the, the short and easy answer to that question is you get the company to dual list on the stock exchange that understands oil and gas and then track that price. <laughs> the, uh, sorry, uh, which is what you did. Older. Which is going which is to going to us. Okay, no, smart move. The, That's what car track um, are doing, by the way. The same thing. They're listing on Nasdaq, so the Americans understand what a what a tech company like them should be valued at. And uh, I think Net One did it back in the days when they were mm-hmm. a reputable company. They did it uh, with great success as well. So smart call. Uh, so uh, thank you. So the the. The, the way to look at it is, yeah, the, the way that the industry looks at it is, is, is that you take your, your 1P and your 2P. And for someone that's never, ever looked at oil and gas before, but you ha- if you have looked at mining, in mining, in hard rock mining, you've got P90, P50, P10. And that represents the level of confidence that you have, 90%, 50%, 10% of the number of molecules underground. Now, that's not necessarily accurate for oil and gas. 
oil and gas, you've got an estimate of the number of molecules underground. That's your C1, C2, C3. So C1 is your 90% confidence of how much gas is sitting underground. The difference with oil and gas is that unlike gold, it's been there for a billion years. It's going to be there for a billion years unless someone goes down and takes it out. Oil and gas, you drill a hole and the gas is going to move. You're dealing, you're dealing with something that, 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 is, yeah, that, that has fluid dynamics associated with it. So your, your analysis isn't so much as to how much is sitting underground. You've got a P1, P2, P3 category. And that's what the reservoir engineer takes into account, the fluid dynamics of gas and oil and the market dynamics, because you can't move LNG very far. Um, and they assess what the market conditions are where you are, what prices you can achieve, what the level of difficulty is associated with pulling the gas out the ground and refining it and then selling it. And that, that gives you a 90%, 50%, and 10% confidence interval on your post-CAPEX business plan. So the way that people typically tend to do this, the way that the industry does it, is that they'll look at your reservoir engineer's P2 estimate, which is the 50% confidence interval, which is already discounted 50%. And then analysts will say, well, let's add on some country risk, let's add on this, let's add on that. And they'll come up with their own factor that they'll multiply by the by the NPV analysis that your reservoir engineer comes out at. That's such that's a thank you for unpacking that for us. But just to take it one step further, we've seen NASPAS, for instance, trading at a huge discount to Tencent because of the country risk. Now you've got the two listings, Australia and South Africa. Uh, in Australia, relative to your peers there, do you trade at a, a substantial discount as well, just like NASPAS does because of the South African uh, domicile? We traded a massive discount. There's no denying that. To, to blame it squarely on South Africa, I think that is, that is a, a small, small portion of it because the, the only other places that you find helium in, in any reasonable quantities are either America, that aren't state-owned, are either America or Canada, U.S. and Canada. And so those will naturally trade at a premium to Renogen on a like-for-like basis. We're, we're, we're very unique, though. We, we don't really have competitors because of the grade of the helium concentrations that we have. And the Australian CS is a helium company, not a gas company. Delphine, it's interesting. This, this treasure chest of South African minerals and, and resources that we often hear about and have been neglecting. Uh, well, junior miners have, have been scarce in South Africa, neglecting because of political mismanagement and all kinds of issues that we could lay at the door of the previous uh, ANC administration. Is it now, when, with the success of a company like Renogen, certainly a success of their share price, is it now going to be a carrot, do you think, for other entrepreneurs to say, well, it's worth having a go because you've got this, this great treasure chest under the ground. Uh, let's Let's make the risk, have the investment, and actually try and do what Renogen have done. Yeah, Alec, I think what you're talking about um, goes back to the fact that the market, as with everything, and I don't just mean the market, I mean the kind of the, the underlying businesses move through cycles. And so if we would not have been having this conversation eight years ago or seven years ago when the world was very different. Um, but yet, if you and I was, were sitting having a conversation about junior miners, you know, in 2006 or 2007, boy, would that have dominated the conversation. 
Um, and so back here we are today, you know, 2021. Um, and so it's not surprising. Um, you know, they say share prices are about are, are determined by the narrative and the numbers. Um, eventually, Renegen will have to prove the numbers to, to meet the narrative. But right now, the narrative is the one that has a tailwind behind it. Um, we are, you know, we've seen what's happening in the commodity cycle. You know, is it the whole conversation around are we in a new super cycle? Um, is it a shorter cycle? But then coupled with my previous comments on, you know, the, the future state of the world in terms of sources of energy. So we are clearly in a cycle that is suiting um, the narrative that we need to hear. And hopefully if we can get some of the policy stability in South Africa, some of almost the, the, the stuff that we need to see for business to get done sooner to convert some of this narrative into numbers um, that we can actually then see um, that would bode well. We need as much that we can um, that we can um, unlock in growth in South Africa, which and, and this is going to come from many places. And and, and let's hope junior miners are are back in in, in the in the upswing of the cycle. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, earlier today, our colleague Jackie Cameron, who's the editor-at-large here at Biz News, had a fascinating discussion with Sean Sanders of Revix, all about cryptocurrencies and why, talking about uh, the, the wind from behind, this one's got an absolute force 10. Let's listen in. Sean, very exciting times for cryptocurrencies with the public listing of Coinbase, which is set to make its 38-year-old founder spectacularly rich. And then on the back of that, we've got Bitcoin and Dogecoin surging. Sean, what does your computer screen and trading platform look like right now? Oh, it's crazy. Uh, I mean, to say the last 12 months has been exciting, the world of crypto would be a complete understatement. Uh, You've seen this market going from a few hundred million dollars to now $1.2 trillion. I mean, that's about $200 billion more than Apple. And yeah, this is something, yeah, six months ago, I think a lot of people would have said this would happen, certainly in the crypto space, it's just it wouldn't happen this quickly. And, you know, I guess one domino fell and that resulted in a whole other set of dominoes falling. And that was one big institutional investor entered the space. And that led to a whole bunch of other institutional investors entering the space. And that was essentially... uh, Tesla with Elon Musk, you know, he was one of the, I guess, early corporate pioneers to sort of uh, enter the world of crypto and decide to take some Bitcoin and put that onto his balance sheet. And that has then resulted in a whole host of other uh, CEOs of big multinational corporates to, you know, enter the market and to start buying Bitcoin. Fund managers are coming into the space. All of a sudden, Bitcoin isn't this weird internet money. It's actually a challenger to gold. And, you know, people are actually investigating Ethereum. Um, Ethereum is the second biggest cryptocurrency, very different to Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin is meant to be more like digital money or like gold, uh, store of value. Um, Whereas Ethereum is sort of looking to become a decentralized computer, which in simplistic terms really means sort of just like the mobile mobile operating system that you have that allows other applications to be built on top of it. Ethereum is looking to do that just with the blockchain being its backbone. And, you know, you've got a whole host of competitors, the likes of Cardano, the likes of Cron, EOS, they're looking to challenge Ethereum's dominance. So it's a super exciting time in the world of crypto. Do you think it's impossible to value a cryptocurrency? I would say that it's really difficult to do that because this market is very sentiment driven. You have um, 
an entire market of individuals that are sort of re predominantly retail. I mean, sure, there's a lot of institutions that have entered the space, but you've got a lot of retail investors that are sort of picking different cryptocurrencies, not really based on fundamentals. Remember, you know, there's hundreds of years, literally, of um, analysis and academia backing how to value stocks or sort of providing the supporting uh, structure to value stocks, to value bonds, to value property. Um, that means that analysts are able to use these sort of processes and structures to actually then say, well, a company or a building or whatever story may be is worth X or Y. Now, with cryptocurrency, we don't have the traditional model. You can try treat them like commodities and you could say, right, it's supply versus demand. But remember, cryptocurrencies aren't really used in the same way as, let's say, gold is used, where it gets taken out of the market. Um, so that becomes a little challenging. You can then look at other models where you say, okay, great, let's look at the stock to flow. And that's a very, uh, it's, a, it's a quite a, a successful model, I suppose, in the crypto space. It's certainly the most accepted model in the crypto space. And what the stock to flow model is trying to do is trying to say, okay, how much cryptocurrency, let's look at Bitcoin as an example, is there in existence? And then how much more cryptocurrency is being introduced into the market every single month? Okay, Delphine, you've got to put your neck on the line here. Uh, all kinds of debates when we talk about cryptocurrencies. Where do you stand? Oh, man. Oh, man. I was hoping you weren't going to ask me that, um, Alec. Um, yeah, because, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, the, the reason is that um, it's almost as though you have to feel as though you have to be binary. Like you're either, you know, you're either on the on the Bitcoin train. And it was so interesting listening to Sean now because uh, as much as I think he's a believer, he also made a lot of the, the, the case points or that, that I would make for why we struggle with this. Um, I saw an interesting uh, kind of, I don't know if it was just a, a screenshot that was placed on LinkedIn today that, that was showing something that Sean alluded to, which was how long it took you know, Apple, Microsoft, et cetera, to get to a trillion dollars and, and said, and, and then it said, um, and look how short it took for Bitcoin, you know, it only took 12 years or something to get to a trillion. Um, and then and then the point being that is Bitcoin now an asset? So have we decided that it's an asset or is it a currency? And I think I'm, I'm much... Um, I'm much more predisposed to having to being won over about the debate that here is an alternative currency in the shape of a crypto, hence the term cryptocurrency. The hard part, which is the arguments that Sean himself really made for me, is that we're struggling to work out how to value it whether as a currency or as an asset. And so while we're in the state of flux, really its price is being determined by a whole bunch of technical reasons. Um, he said more buyers and sellers, you know, a lot of positive sentiment. Where, how did you suddenly go from $100 million to $1.2 trillion? Where did that money come from? Well, is it surprise, surprise? It was a massive stimulus of not dissimilar amounts of money. Yes, dollars pumped into the economy that so ironically got, got channeled into Bitcoin or, or other cryptos. So I'm cautious to say to be like a total hater or a total disbeliever because we just don't know what the world of, of five to 10 years from now looks like in terms of how we transact, just as though the last 10 years have been so dramatically different. And if anything, COVID has taught us is that um, the pace of change has accelerated at an exponential rate. So we shouldn't expect things to just tick along like the way we used to seeing them tick along. Um, but I just, I don't, I'm happy and I'm glad right now that there's a whole bunch of other assets that I can actually value that are truly undervalued that I can invest in. Because like, woe for to me the day that Bitcoin remains the only asset and it has what it has for, you know, presents today because I'm going to struggle. Um, to work out on what I know today on how to value it. But maybe the future will be different. 
Well, it's uh, Helena Conradi operates in a completely different area to Bitcoin, uh, although <laughs> she might be going in there. Helena, lovely talking with you. She's the CEO of Satrix. Uh, Hello, do, Alex. Do you have a view on Bitcoin? Uh, I, I know that there's, there are quite a few people who'd love to see a, a Bitcoin ETF or unit trust. Could, it, could there be one coming from, uh, sorry, a cryptocurrency uh, ETF? Could yes. there be one coming from Satrix? I was now wondering, Alex, if you're going to put me in the same spot here as, as Dolphine. Um, you never know. Uh, I will leave it. I will leave it there. It's a very, very interesting topic. It's a very interesting whether you call it a currency or an asset. And I'm sure all of us has read as much as we can about this. Um, so let let let's leave it as open as that. It's a very interesting subject. I, I um, to our premium subscribers this morning, I wrote about. Uh, Howard Marks, who's a, a, a global investment guru, and his memo to clients, where he said that he's changed his mind on so many things after spending 10 months with his son, who's a growth investor, and Howard Marks is an iconic value investor. But then when he spoke about crypto, he had the same conclusion of what you said, <laughs> Delphine and, and, and Elena now as well, that mm, let my son rather discuss that one with you. Uh, it sounds like his son is, a, is, is uh, like many young people. Uh, they see value in it. But uh, I wanted to ask you about two things, really. We had the uh, financial results coming out from Easy Equities, and they really are a phenomenon now. 800,000 retail accounts that have been opened uh, in this, this online stockbroker. You saw easy long before the rest of us or that the opportunity was there because yeah. it's you've had a partnership with them since 2015. What did you see That's there right. that, that yes. from Satrix's point of view that uh, has taken people like me uh, a lot longer to click on to? Yes. So first of all, I want to congratulate Charles and, and the team. I think it's excellent results and so, so well deserved. But yes, yeah, it's a very exciting, um, I think it's an exciting example of when there's a shared vision, <laughs> how magic can, can really happen within a very short time. So we met them the first time we saw them actually present at a conference in June 2015. Um, and they were then not even one year old. As a, as a, as a business. Um, and I think we started talking to them in June. Then we said we like what we see here. And, and it's a shared ethos of the, the common values of access, democratizing investment, financial inclusion. You know, we've started that the moment when, when we sort of picked the tagline on the market, but we saw that, um, ex- immediately in, in this business as well. And, and I mean, it was a leap of faith, but, um, three months later, we developed, uh, we launched Satrix Now, that is a partnership between um, Easy Equities and us, and we actually, well, it's a white labeling of their platform. Um, and after that, we, we never looked back. Um, we, um, Sunlam then went to acquire a 30% stake in Easy Equities in 2017. Um, so uh, very much a strategic commitment, not only a partnership. Um, and uh, we, at the beginning of, remember, we launched our Satrix investment plan in 20, 2006. But at the beginning of this, of 2020, in March, actually, just the weekend before lockdown, we moved all our clients from the investment plan. That was about 50,000 clients. We moved to Easy Equity. So now we have only one um, online investment platform, and that's Satrix now. So, yes, we, we're definitely very proud of our partnership with Easy Equities. 50,000. You know, if you go back a couple of years, there were hardly 50,000 retail investors in total in South Africa. And just there's that many alone. 
uh, on Satrix's side. What have the volumes been like? What uh, what kind of inve- what kind of savings are we seeing? Because we know we desperately mm. need a savings culture in South Africa. So it's actually not 50,000. It's more closer to 65. That was just the, the old client base that we, uh, sort of the existing client base that we moved. The new clients, we also have had the best year ever in 2020. I think Charles commented on the same, um, uh, sort of event as a, as a very, uh, the pandemic was, was not a, a happy event, but it was also, it was a pivotal point. And I think lots of people speak about that. And it is about savings. It's people probably had that, um, uh, emergency funds that was much more, um, important to them, but also had time to maybe think about what happens when I don't have a job? And the savings culture was probably a little bit more important and more at the top of, of your mind um, than ever before. So, yes, we've seen in terms of just general investments and in different products as well. So I'm surprised. I mean, not, not surprised in a negative, negative way, but the investors are getting extremely educated and sophisticated. And well done, Alec. I mean, it's part of your um, educational uh, content that you bring to the market as well that I think that that make investors so much more sophisticated. Well, it's been an interesting ride for Sunlam as well. Uh, the fact that you guys went in in 2015, then they bought in, and I think it was 70 cents a share. They've almost doubled their, mm. their, their uh, investment of 100 million, uh, given mm. what's happened to the share price le- recently at 120 cents a share. And I'm sure that the Easy Equities uh, army are going to see that going much higher in future. Uh, on another score, though, uh, money market funds uh, swept South Africa. Um, mm. many 20, 30 years ago. And APSA has one, has one, had one, of 85 <laughs> billion rand, and they're closing mm. it down. Now, it, it, to me, this, this, this beggar's belief, given that they believe they can get their clients to move it across into savings accounts or other bank deposits, when they specifically, uh, you know how difficult it is to, to uh, to attract assets in the first place. Yes, uh, yes. W- are you going to be c- closing down your money market funds? Do you see this as starting a trend? De- definitely not. Definitely not. No, we we actually the money our money market fund. So this this caught us by surprise as well. But our money market fund is actually part of what we call the access range. So the access range um, is four different, almost like a starter pack, where you have a money market fund, you have a local component, as such as 40, you have an international component, um, a global MSCI world, and then a balance fund. So we see it as crucial as that, that this is almost, and in a, it, it's almost a, a parking space as well. If you, if you think that you want to move your money out of MSCI and you want to investigate other options, this is the way to go. So we will definitely not close it down. Um, to the contrary, I think it's a very important part of your total portfolio. So, yeah, it, it is perplexing. And to see uh, Signia already jumping in and offering, <laughs> yeah. uh, are you going to do something similar? Target the, the, I mean, 85 billion rands, a lot of money. 
it is a lot of money. I think we can we can split that. <laughs> but yeah, no, there's there's definitely. Um, uh, I think all of all of the asset managers with money market funds will definitely speak to their um, current investors, but also target the rest of the market. I mean, this is a it's a once of opportunity almost um, if to to see a money market fund as huge as that to be closed down. Uh, Helena Conradi is the CEO of Satrix. Stephen von Koller used to be on the Exco at Absa for some years. He's now, we're going to talk to him in a moment about EOH, but come on, Steve. If you were still on the Exco there and they made a decision like this, I would expect that at least you would have put, it, put up some resistance. It seems crazy to close down a 85 billion rand fund. Uh, it's it's interesting, Alec, is that um, I think they, they had two funds. They had their own money market fund, which you invested in APSA paper, and then they had a money market fund, which was lots of different um, banks, um, a paper and financial institutions. And when African Bank went down, a lot of people thought they had the APSA paper and there was no downside risk, and they ended up having to take a 10% hand, uh, haircut. And that created quite a lot of... Um, reputational issues. So I think with the new banking regs around liquidity uh, and um, your your liquidity reserves, they've decided to focus solely on the ABSA money market fund, which is ABSA paper only and not um, manage it like an asset manager and leave the asset management to the asset manager. So yes, it is huge. I mean, 85 billion is a eye-watering number and will obviously need to be replaced somehow, but they will replace it uh, a lot of their depositors with uh, ABSA, pure ABSA paper rather than uh, a mix. And that's really the background to it. Not if Magda Wizicch has got anything to do with it. In fact, not her anymore. It's her colleagues there at Signia. But it's nice to see competition and uh, no fees on uh, alternative money market funds being offered to the ABSA guys. Stephen, from your perspective, though, you're in a completely different world now. Uh, you've been... Uh, I suppose sent in some people thought to be the undertaker at EOH, which was in a, a, a dire state when you went there. It's now starting to show signs of health. And we have to ask you the obvious question. Haven't you, isn't the patient now okay? I mean, why do you have to sell these amazing businesses that you still have left there, which uh, you, you said in your report today that you are going to be exiting them and I, I looked at the uh, at, at those two companies uh, Cybrin and Information Services they're contributing big numbers to your bottom line uh, to your profitability um, with uh, in the last financial year 800 million revenue 210 million in profit in EBITDA this this uh, sorry in the last uh, last financial year in the six months in this six months you still made 140 million uh, in EBITDA from it surely there has to be a time when you stop selling businesses from EOH and you start rebuilding. No, absolutely. I think it's a great question. I mean, if if you remember right in the beginning, we talked a bit about uh, having to keep the OCO ecosystem together because that was 65% of the market cap. And that business operates as an ecosystem because it's the only end-to-end system and integrator in in South Africa, and, you know, it's got 84% of its revenue comes from services, which is own IP. And uh, you don't want to just sell 
someone one product these days. They want them connected together. And this is really where we differentiate itself. So we had to make some decisions. These RP assets ran largely on their own. They were ring-fenced, so they were easy to sell. Our OCO was a little bit more difficult because it was a number of businesses that have had been pulled together. So when we made that decision, we said, let's sell the easier ones where we'll get the higher multiples, we'll get the most bang for our buck, and then you have a business like Aoka that's very scalable, very aligned to growth, and we've seen that uh, accelerate through uh, COVID. And so I think we've made the right bet here, uh, judging by the results and the margins we're now getting out of Aoka. And that will just write itself over time. And, you know, when you sell these businesses, you get a multiple of the cash flow or earnings of those businesses. So you can take a few years forward and you can actually pay down the debt today. And this is really what the attractiveness is. The last thing is also you have to be careful if you hold on to these software or platform businesses too long without investing in them, someone you know can, can catch you up. So you have to continually evolve them. And we just didn't have enough capital to do that. And so it was always about getting the right home for these businesses that someone can invest in them. You save the jobs, but you also save the business because they can continue to grow. The market didn't like it, Justin. What was the uh, the reaction today on the share price? It was down 5.5%, Alec, to just uh, touch over 8 rand a share. Uh, the, the debt problems and the legacy issues still remain, but um, Stephen has done a a good job uh, given that he was thrown a hospital pass in 2019 no doubt a hospital pass but but the drop in the share price today Stephen, that that must be a little concerning to you no not really i mean if you have a look over the last week the last month the last six months the share price is is up our share is quite thinly traded so uh, it can bounce up and down you see today if you go and have a look at the actual graph it went uh, crashing down, went you know straight up again in a V-shape, and then someone uh, sold a big chunk during the auction, which put it down. Otherwise, it would have been, I think, only about 1% down, 1.5%. But that's after quite a big run from you know around about 780 at the beginning of last week. So it's just what the share is. It bounces up and down. Uh, there are issues we still have to sort out. The debt and the tax obviously still sit there, and we have to finalize our last few legacy issues. And so until those are done, it's quite difficult to get a read. But if the most important thing for me was two things. One is we've reduced the size of the business, but the margins have gone up. We've made uh, the first operating profit in the over two years that I've been there, just over two years of 59 million. The reason why it didn't turn into headline earnings positive was tax and uh, interest. But most importantly is you can now start seeing what the normalized business looks like because the difference between normalized EBITDA of 363 and reported EBITDA was only 33 million. This time last year, there was 500 million or over 500 million of normalization adjustments. And what I take a lot of comfort from is two years ago when we started this progress, this program just after we had the bombshell dropped, we estimated if we did everything that we planned to do, we'll end up with annualized EBITDA of around 800 million, and that didn't take into account uh, CCS and uh, Sintel sales. If you add those back, we're actually slightly better off than we predicted uh, at, uh, two years ago. So that gives me comfort that the underlying business was as strong as I thought it was at the time. So apart from the sale of those two businesses, and, and we understand that you want to get 
rid of the debt and you've got the bankers on your neck uh, still. They, they, uh, they still need two billion rand from you. There are two other big issues. Uh, the overbilling by the old EOH of state departments. Uh, maybe you can give us an under, uh, understanding of where you are on that. And then the second, the big, big story about Microsoft, who pulled the licenses from you. Are you any closer to getting those back? Yeah, so on the, the first one, we had two instances. We had uh, a um, you know selling of Microsoft licenses to the Department of Defense. Those two contracts have been, uh, we've settled on them with the SAU. We gave them all the information. Uh, they agreed with our um, our calculations. We're paying that back. It was just around $42 million. We're paying that back over three years. So we're about six, seven months into that. Uh, so it doesn't all, t- all, all uh, come out at once. The last one is the Department of Water Affairs, which was the SAP contracts, also overbilling. And um, we, we're quite a long way down with um, the um, negotiation on that. It's quite complicated because in some instances it's not just us involved. And uh, so they have to balance all the bits up. But we've, I think we've adequately provided in our accounts and I suspect we'll be given the same length of time to pay it back, which will, you know, give us a lot of breathing room. Um, on Microsoft, um, obviously the uh, closure with SIU on, on the matter is was, was pretty important. We will try and engage them, you know, over, over the coming year. But the reality is, is the actual selling of licenses is a small portion. If you think about it, we use Microsoft every day. They allow me to use their software. I pay them licenses. We've still got a lot of the engineers, the qualified engineers that we work with Microsoft on, uh, um, customers and, and deliver Microsoft products. You may have seen at the end of the year, ironically, we were named the AWS Microsoft Workloads Partner of the Year. So a lot of that skill still stays within our business and we can still use it. What it has forced us to do is obviously upscale our AWS business, which is really doing well, and our Google Cloud business, which is, you know, both of those grown, uh, you know, over 15% over the last six months. So what's nice about it, obviously not great reputationally, but it's forced us to diversify, and we're seeing some of those results come through. AWS meaning Amazon Web Services, Web Services. Uh, the, the, the dominant player in the cloud space. Delphine, any any questions you'd like to pose to Stephen before we let him run away? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, the listening to Stephen, what's been interesting is to really understand, um, you know, a CEO who's come in and had to kind of develop a plan. Um, and in that plan, has, a lot of it has to be fixing, right, writing the business, shrinking to a better business and creating something that's a sustainable platform. So my question is quite a simple one, which is, um, what's the dream, Stephen? Like, what's the dream, which if an investor today is buying the future states of EOH, what is that that we're buying? Is it a is it a cloud based business that has a decent share of the South African market in an, you know in this end to end delivery? Because um, I think that for us then captures the imagination again. Because so much of what you've been doing in the last couple of years is just to get everything right. Yeah, exactly right. And I think there's a there's a few things. If you have a look, uh, Megan put up a great slide which shows the EBITDA margins of the various uh, pillars that we've got. And if you have a look at the OCO pillar. We've already moved that into, you know, sort of mid-teens EBITDA margins, which is fantastic. And that just shows you from the 84% services, the IP. The excitement there is we can move that now 
into other jurisdictions through Egypt, through our, our business in Egypt. That's a big country, 110 million people growing at 5% into the Middle East where there's a huge market in places like Saudi and, and Dubai. And then also take some of our expertise yeah, that's not um, uh, geographically bound. Like, for example, if you get uh, uh, an agency business, you can only sell in South Africa. But if you've got an AWS certification, you can do it anywhere. And so we then take those two and we start selling them in, into Europe. So that's our OCO. And then um, next take is two businesses. As, um, one is the people outsourcing or, or people solutions, and the other one smart infrastructure, largely for the public sector. Those, they've now done... Um, Last half and this half, they've uh, you know given us positive EBITDA, small, but uh, as we normalise those businesses, those margins should increase as well. And so you know that's sort of the next two three years excitement for me because those are the scalable businesses and those are the ones we've kept, and that's really where you get um, the better returns. But as you said, it's a it's a haul in a tough global economy at the moment. But uh, fortunately, we've continued with our upward trend and an improvement. I, I don't know if you really answered that question, Stephen. It's, it's more if you've got a long-term shareholder who's been sitting in the stock for the last five years and, and they paid, I don't know, uh, what would it be, 20 times as much? as, as 75 rand. Yeah, uh, for the shares and they, they, they're betting on, uh, on this, this smart guy who's come across from ABSA and MTN to fix things and to turn it into another world beater. Is that dream possible? Would you ever uh, be able to to sell that idea internally and also to your shareholders? Yeah, the thing that is uh, interesting our business is our ability to build platforms, and we've got a few of them: the digital signatures platform, we've got the medical trials or um, um, a healthcare documentation business that's FDA approved. That can go into any country. We've now built on the back of that a. Um, um, compliance, risk management as a service, these you can export because once you've built the base, you can. Unfortunately, for the short term, those businesses that were more mature, that were more scalable, we've had to sell them and get you know good value for them. But in our OCO, we've got all the capability to do that. Do I think in the next two years our share price is going into 175 rand? No, definitely not. Um, it's going to take a lot longer than that. I think but you've disappointed so, uh, a lot of people with that comment, but uh, <laughs> nevertheless, realistically, though, you can build platforms, and who knows? One of them could be a world beater. Yeah, potentially. And, you know, the difference, Alec, what was interesting, I did uh, this whole exponential or singularity universe or exponentialization thing, both in the bank, both at the telco, I was at MTN. And then I did it again when we got through this um, um, reputational thing. And I'll come back to that in a, in, a, in a minute just to try and work out what is the hope. The difference between the three businesses was the people didn't come up with any different ideas. The difference was, as at EOH, we've got all the people that can build it. So they knew exactly what could be done. Whereas the other businesses, I needed to go and find people to help me, like the Accentures, the Deloitte's, the EOH's. And so that's what makes me so excited. But one thing I did miss to say, just in the excitement, is last year we had a real problem in that 
uh, we weren't getting any of these large long-term contracts because people were waiting to see if we would turn the business around and be sustainable. And there's a, there's a great slide in the presentation. I think there's 10 contracts there, and they are long-term contracts, anywhere between one year and five years. They're all the big corporates, all the big public sector entities. And so this whole reputational pendulum has definitely swung back again, and we're starting to now create this sustainability of the business, which makes me a lot more comfortable. Stephen, I've uh, often said on this program and through to the business community that you're the man responsible for the business portfolio, because if it wasn't for you teaching me about exponentiality when you brought Singularity University over here, I would never have bought Amazon shares at 327 and so on and so forth. So thank you for that. I think I think that you've actually hit a little bit of a nail on the head here for the long-term story, the narrative that, that Delphine spoke about a bit earlier. You understand exponentiality. You've got the tools that could actually get the exponentiality. We'll be pulling for you, and I'm sure a lot of other people will do. Thank you for being with us tonight, Stephen and Delphine, our guest co-host. Before we go, though, Justin, do you want to bring us up to date with the markets today? The JSE All Share Index was up at 67,800. The U.S. banks reported bumper first quarter earnings, smashing expected earnings out the park. All U.S. banks are strongly up in the morning session. On the JSE, the highlights included growth point up 3.5% to 13.50, despite going ex-dividend on the news that a consortium wants to purchase its 30% stake in European real estate company Global Worth for 8 billion rand. Growth point paid approximately 3 billion for its stake in Global Worth in 2017. Sabanya Stillwater was up 5% to 70 rand a share. Richmond increased 3 rand 50 to 150 rand a share, with LVMH reporting 30% increased revenues year on year, possibly acting as a tailwind for Richmond today. Sassel reached another 52-week high on the back of stronger oil prices. The share is trading at 233 rand a share. And EOH finished the day 5.5% lower at 8 rand 8 cents a share as the company released its interim results. In the currency markets, the rand was stronger against all the major currencies to 14 rand 41 to the dollar, 19 rand 85 to the sterling, and 17 rand 24 to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,737 an ounce. Brent crude is well up at $66 a barrel. The premier cryptocurrency will put you back 910k a bitcoin. And in the US markets, the Dow Jones Industrial Average and S&P 500 are on the green, and the NASDAQ is slightly in the red. Thanks for getting through that laundry list so rapidly, Justin. Thanks for being with us tonight. We'll be back with the Biz News Power Hour at the same time tomorrow, 5.30 to 6.30. Uh, you can go on to biznewsradio.com to get the recordings of every episode of this show. And in fact, to uh, to listen live as well through the live stream and, of course, on FMR. Uh, if you are lucky enough to live as uh, Delphine does in the Cape area. Until tomorrow, from the team here at Biz News, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.